This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We will produce them, and we will play them back. They are some of our favorites. The American people, you, our listeners, are terrific writers and storytellers. In the annals of American capitalism, there is probably no crazier, wilder, more chaotic boom to bust and back again phenomenon than the Comstock load in the 1860s, the richest couple of square miles on Earth. This small section of dirt changed the destiny of the United States. Here to tell this rags-to-riches frontier tale is Old West historian Roger McGrath. McGrath is a professor in Southern California and the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. Here's Roger. If ever there were real-life figures who could have been characters in a Horatio Alger novel, it was the Silver Kings. John Mackey, James Fair, William O'Brien, and James Flood epitomized the rags-to-riches American dream. John Mackey is the engineering genius of the Silver Kings. Born in Ireland in 1831, he immigrates with his family to New York in 1840. He reaches the California gold fields in 1851. He enjoys hard physical work and mining camp life. He has almost no formal education and had stuttered badly when young, but he is blessed with extraordinary intelligence. James Fair is a mine superintendent without peer and a shrewd financier. Born in Ireland in 1831, he immigrates with his family to Illinois during the early 1840s. He has enormous energy, a trenchant mind, and a natural aptitude for all things mechanical. He joins the gold rush to California in 1849. William O'Brien is born in Ireland in 1826 and brought to New York as a small child. By the time he joins the gold rush of 49, he has grown into a large man of erect carriage. He will soon have a head of prematurely white hair. His size, posture, and hair give him a dignified appearance. Unlike his partners, he is soft-spoken, with an avuncular, kindly quality about him. He is the least forceful of the Silver Kings, but his gregarious and genial nature make him the most popular and ideal for public relations. James Flood is the only Silver King not to have been born in Ireland. He's born in New York in 1826, shortly after his Irish immigrant parents arrive. He catches the gold fever in 1849 and sails around the Horn to California. He has a quick wit, a shrewd mind, a volatile temper, and a powerful drive to succeed. He is a genius in trading stocks and in finance. Mackie Fair, O'Brien, and Flood all spend the early 1850s prospecting and mining in California, and each has some success. With his earnings from the diggings, O'Brien opens a marine supply store in San Francisco. Flood, with the money he has made, opens a livery and carriage shop just down the street from O'Brien. Both lose their businesses, though, in the Depression of 1855. They then join forces and open a saloon. O'Brien reasons the only thing that does not go down in a depression is the consumption of alcohol. He's right, and their saloon thrives. Flood handles the business end of the operation while O'Brien greets customers and serves roast beef sandwiches that come complimentary 
with a drink. By the early 1860s, Flood and O'Brien are dabbling in mining stock, buying and selling shares in mines that tap into the great Comstock load in Nevada. Flood has an uncanny ability in stock trading. Within a few years, he and O'Brien amass a small fortune. In 1868, they open their own stock brokerage office in San Francisco. Mackey and Fair, working separately, also spend the early 1850s prospecting in California. Here's Comstock Lode historian Ronald James speaking to us at the location of the historic Comstock Lode strike. The first miners who came here were after gold. Gold's easy. Gold doesn't combine with many things, so you can actually even pick it out of, the, of their washed dirt with tweezers and you hope for a nugget, but you find little flakes of gold. And that's how you can pull the gold out. What they weren't expecting was anything else that would be valuable. The two miners who were coming up here, a couple of Irish immigrants, were just looking for a good place to, to dam up a, a natural spring so they could get water because they were placer mining like the original California gold miners of the of 1849 and they were hoping that they could find some water throw some dirt into their uh, long toms which were these wooden boxes and wash the dirt while they were damming a natural spring they found which was right up here they started throwing some of the dirt in there and found immediately that they were uncovering several ounces of gold and it was a very good day, and it was the first of many good days. In fact, 20 years worth of good days. They were complaining for those first few weeks after the strike in June of 1859. These early miners complained about this blue mud that gummed up their works because as you wash away the lighter soil, it leaves gold behind, but it was also leaving behind this blue mud that was really obnoxiously heavy and it was hard to separate it from the, from the gold. So after several weeks, they took a, an ore sample over to California and said, what exactly do we have here? And what they found was that it, if you had a ton of this stuff, it would produce over $800 in gold when gold was selling for $16 an ounce. But what was really surprising that it was that it would produce over $3,000 in silver when silver was selling for $1.60 an ounce. And so that's really where everyone understood just how wealthy this ore body, or using the Cornish word load, was. And then it became known as the Comstock load. When they learn of the Comstock load strike at Virginia City, they head over the Sierras to Nevada. The people who came to the Comstock were an international body of, of people. Nevada actually had, in, in the 1870 census, more foreign-born per capita than any other state in the nation, you know, more than the great immigrant states of, you think of Massachusetts and Boston and New York and how vibrantly international those places were, Chicago. A lot of Europeans, obviously, a large group of Chinese uh, lived in, in, here. Uh, they, they came from all over. They often arrived as single men. And so it, it was a, a very masculine community. And when we come back, more on the lives of these four risk takers, James Flood, John Mackey, James Fair, and William O'Brien, the Silver Kings. The story of the Comstock Lode continues here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories and the story of John Mackey, James Fair, James Flood, and William O'Brien, the Silver Kings. Let's pick up with Roger McGrath, where we last left off. Mackey works as a pick and shovel miner for $4 a day, then as a timberman for six. Soon he develops his own business, excavating and fortifying tunnels. Much of his pay is in the form of stock certificates. Now, most of these prove worthless, but a few give him enough money to buy the Kentuck, a mine whose ore has supposedly been exhausted. Mackey sinks a new shaft in the Kentuck and hits a rich deposit. During the next several years, the mine pays over a million dollars in dividends, huge money in the 1860s. Mackey also has said he will retire as soon as he has 25,000 in the bank. Well, now he has many times that, but his appetite has only been whetted for new adventures and enterprises. While Mackey is working the Kentuck, James Fair becomes superintendent of the Ufer, one of the richest mines on the Comstock. In 1868, he enters into a partnership to develop new mining properties with Mackey. I'm standing at the base of the Ofer pit, and they called it Ofer after Ophir, the gold mine of King Solomon in the Old Testament. By asserting that this was the Ofer mine, they were claiming that this was a mine of biblical proportions. And they got it right, because hundreds of millions of dollars came out of the ground beginning right here. Back in San Francisco, Jim Flood and Bill O'Brien take notice of these two young upstarts on the Comstock. Soon they are discussing joining forces. And in 1869, the San Francisco stockbrokers and the Comstock miners form a partnership. By the early 1870s, through wise investments and daring gambles, the four Irishmen are challenging William Ralston of the Bank of California for control of the Comstock. In 1872, they buy the Consolidated Virginia Mine for $100,000 from Ralston's right-hand man in Virginia City, William Sharon. Sharon gleefully reports to Ralston the Irishmen have been taken. The Consolidated Virginia, says Sharon, is a bankrupt piece of property. Over a million dollars has already been wasted in the mine in fruitless exploration. Mackey and Fair have a hunch if they cut a new tunnel at a deeper level, they will hit a vein of ore. For several months, they tunnel, pouring 200,000 into the Consolidated Virginia, but hoisting up nothing but worthless rock. William Sharon roars with laughter. Then one day, Mackey and Fair hit a delicately thin vein of ore. They try to follow it, but it disappears. They find it again, but again it disappears. They find it a third time. This time the vein begins to widen, to a foot, to several feet, to a half dozen feet, to 12 feet. Mackey and Fair send word to Flood and O'Brien in San Francisco. The stockbrokers quickly buy up as much outstanding consolidated Virginia stock as they can. The deeper the new shaft is sunk in the consolidated Virginia, the wider the vein becomes. At the 1,500-foot level, the vein is more than 50 feet wide. The ore is so rich, waste rock has to be added to it to put it through the stamp mill. The Irishmen have discovered the very heart of the Comstock load what is called 
the Big Bonanza. For the rest of their lives, they are known as the Silver Kings. Here again is Ronald James. In 1873, they found what was called the Big Bonanza, which was a, a, a huge deposit of gold and silver that if Virginia City wasn't famous before, and it was, it then was permanently famous. And I'm not sure without the Big Bonanza, we would have the Cartwrights and the, and the television show Bonanza. Here, the, the Comstock load, the combination of gold and silver, started expanding as they went underground to five feet, 10 feet, at, and at its, at its widest, up to 60 feet wide of nearly pure gold and silver. I mean, obviously mixed with some rock, but you had, to, you had to dig it all out. You couldn't stop doing that. The problem is you cannot find a log stout enough to span 60 feet, even 20 feet without snapping, because it has to hold up a mountain and mountains want to collapse in on empty space. So they brought in a German immigrant by the name of Philip Didesheimer, who developed the square set timbering method. And it was basically a series of cubes that uh, could be in modular fashion added to so that whatever the stope, the empty space left over when you dug out all the gold and silver, whatever that stope was shaped like, you could fill it up with a stout framework of timber. And then you would fill it back with waste rock as you dug even deeper in, inside the mine. So it was a really nice, stable way to support a mine as you were pursuing precious metals. And that was exported throughout the world. It's only the first of many inventions, flat wire cable, the safety cage. This was the first place where uh, dynamite was experimented with in a big way underground. Uh, it was the first place where uh, uh, air compressed drills were used. Uh, so it became one invention after the next that defined international underground mining for the next 50 or 60 years. By 1875, the Silver Kings are fabulously wealthy. The Consolidated Virginia is paying dividends of a million dollars a month, something like a hundred million in today's money. San Francisco is seized by a speculative mania. If the Consolidated Virginia has hit the big bonanza, other mines might also. Thousands of shares of mining stock trade daily. People make and lose fortunes overnight. Charwomen buy the hotels they scrub floors in. Hack drivers give away their carriages to live on Knob Hill. Chinese gambling dens close because Chinese are gambling in mining stocks instead of Fantan. From 1873 to 1882, the Consolidated Virginia yields 65 million in gold and silver and pays 43 million in dividends, more than 4 billion in today's dollars. Here again is Ronald James. The, the deepest shaft here dropped over 3,000 feet, 3,200 feet. It's over a half mile, a straight elevator drop. And keep in mind, this is in 1870, 1880, when most people have never ridden an elevator anywhere. And to, to imagine these people being dropped down over half miles straight down, it, it, it really is something. There was a law on the Nevada books that said it's against the law to talk to a hoist operator. He was the fellow who, who was running the, the spool as it lowered the cages down. And it's, it's illegal to talk to a hoist operator while he's working because if you distract him and he's off by 10 feet, that, that could be fatal to the, to the guys in the cage as they drop down. The Silver Kings all live riotously well and die with multi-million dollar estates. William O'Brien 
contributes to charities and supports all his close relatives, especially the McDonough and Coleman families of San Francisco. James Flood buys San Francisco real estate, erects numerous buildings, funds new business ventures, and establishes the Nevada Bank. The Nevada Bank later merges with Wells Fargo. He donates large sums to charities. He and his wife and their children live on the fabulous 35-acre estate at Menlo Park. James Fair is elected to the U.S. Senate from Nevada, but spends most of his time accumulating real estate in San Francisco. He becomes the city's largest taxpayer. He also establishes two banks and a railroad. John Mackey forms a telegraph company, lays a cable across the Atlantic, and breaks the Western Union monopoly. He makes more millions. During his lifetime, he gives away more than five million in gifts. He also tears up IOU notes worth more than two million, like for giving 200 million in today's money. When the great fire of October 1875 destroys the central part of Virginia City, including the town's Catholic Church, St. Mary's of the Mountains. Mackey donates much of the money to have St. Mary's rebuilt bigger and better than ever. During a slow period on the Comstock, Mackey secretly pays a Virginia City grocer to supply provisions to any miner out of work. He also is the largest contributor to Sisters Hospital, requiring only that his donations be kept confidential. John Mackey, James Fair, William O'Brien and James Flood demonstrate that Horatio Alger characters were not confined to novels, but were found for real in America. And there you have it, the story of the Silver Kings, and my goodness, a $100,000 investment back then, and then plowing 200000 down more, digging, digging without success, digging again without success, reminding us of so many of the stories we've done in Midland, Texas, and the frackers who are doing the same thing underneath the ground that these Silver Kings were back in the day. This is Lee Habib, the Silver King's story, here on Our American Stories. Where the rain never falls, the sun never shines, it's dark as a dungeon way down in the mine well it's many a man this is our american stories and our next story comes from our friend and contributor john elfner a high school history teacher from illinois it's the story of an unlikely basketball star, and it's adapted from a documentary film titled Jordanville, the story of a big-time, small-town legend made by Ann Colton and John Moy. Here's John Elfner with the story. In 1965, in the small town of Fenville, Michigan, Richie Jordan, a senior guard on the Fenville High School basketball team, scored 60 points in a single game to close out his high school career. That game capped a season full of record-breaking stats, including 888 points in a single season and 2,210 points scored over his entire high school career. These are remarkable numbers, but the most impressive numbers attached to Richie Jordan 
aren't measured in points, but in feet and inches. Richie Jordan was only five foot seven inches tall. He was always the, the best player on the court in basketball. He was the most outstanding shooter that I've seen in the game today. Rich had the best vertical jump by far. Rich was the type of ball player that could come across half court and shoot a jump shot, nothing but net. He comes in for a layup and his shoelaces flashed across my eyes. He delivered the goods year in and year out, time after time after time. It was a joyful thing to see Rich play. Every voice you hear in this story will be someone that's played with, against, or coached Richie Jordan. And Rich's talent was recognized from a very early age. He was playing basketball with older kids when he was very young. We kind of tested him right away early, and then we went out behind the elementary school and played tackle Red Rover. Um, yeah, he, he stood up to us just fine. And this is who they were talking about. Rich Jordan, Fenville High School, class of 1965. When I was playing with guys 14 when I was 8 or 9, and when I was 11, I was playing with 18-year-old guys. A lot of people think because you're short or small that you've got a disadvantage. If you're good and you're strong, you can do probably more than a big, because they can't, the center of gravity is too high. They can't stay with you. He played against taller guys his whole career, so uh, I never heard him say anything about uh, being bothered playing with taller guys. He's a classic example of, yes, he knew he wasn't going to be as tall as a lot of people, but he would be stronger than everyone. He was years and years and years ahead of his time lifting weights. He was lifting weights when no one was lifting weights. He was interested in uh, sort of physical culture and developing himself years before other people were. Right here, I lifted weights. I had a bar and cement, and I lifted them and lifted them and lifted them. I gained like 25 pounds from my freshman to sophomore year, and there was no steroids or any of that junk. It was peanut butter and some steak and chocolate milk and just a lot of hard work. Ray Ferrer was Rich's coach at Fenville High School. He was 5'7 and weighed about 160 pounds when he was a senior in high school. And he could bench press over 300 pounds. And uh, he was just extremely strong. Rich was always aggressive about everything he did. Till 11 or 12 at night, you know, bump, 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 bump. Rich would be out there shooting baskets. When he was playing in the gym and basketball and taking his shots, he was never happy if the ball rattled and hit the rim a little bit. He wanted it to be all net. He wanted it to be right there. After practice was over, then he'd say, Coach, we got to shoot. And so he had a, uh, a circle of where he likes to shoot his jump shots from. And he, he had to make 10 in a row from each spot or we started all over again. And I was late for dinner many, many nights because I was there shooting baskets with him. I was practicing all the time. I was doing it for fun. It was just fun. And I just, I could never get enough of it. And the practice paid off. By his senior year, Rich had a 38-inch standing vertical jump and a 51.5-inch running vertical jump. To put that in perspective, that's higher than some of the best NBA players who are known for their vertical leap. I didn't put limits on myself. 
I saw that there were short guys that could jump, but not short as I was. But I just, I don't know, I had a, you know, a dream that I could go up and do that. And I, I think you have to have patience though as an athlete. You know, I couldn't do that immediately. I could touch the little loop on the net, and then I could touch the backboard, and then I could touch the brace, and then I could touch the rim. I wanted to be really good. You know, I really wanted to be good. And when I came out on the floor, I'm sure that people who came to see me thought, that's the guy? He's, you know, <laughs> five foot seven, you know? Uh, of course, when I jumped up and dunked it, it made a little difference. And little as he was, you'd be surprised how high he got up in the air with the big fellows. <laughs> what he's got is probably the fastest first step that I've ever seen and uh, it was just incredible how he could just take over a game at will. What would take your breath away would be the size of him and the ability that he had of jumping and shooting. You wouldn't believe it. Richard Jordan never let size get in the way, not only his own size, but the size of his hometown. Fenville had a population of fewer than a thousand people when Richie was in high school. Fenville was really a beautiful little town, and it's five miles from Lake Michigan. Uh, it's a lot of apples and the cherries and, and the strawberries and it's like blueberries, and it's kind of a rural area. The town closed down when we played. I mean, they could have come in and robbed everything because there was nothing open. When I was leaving school, they were lined up at the door. Three, four hours before, they had them lined up from the town all the way to... And when we broke through that paper, you know what you do, and you, there was a crowds were standing room only, kid, people were underneath the... And it was really a lot of fun. Rich's parents were named Tuffy and Sylvia. They were examples of love, toughness, and high expectations for everyone. Rich's family, you couldn't meet better people. My dad really instilled so much confidence in me. He just expected me to be able to do things. He was from uh, Missouri, and uh, he was a, a poor boy that had picked cotton when he was a kid, he, and he was very proud of that. He picked 500 pounds of cotton, and one day at 11 and 12 years old, he would carry it. He made the baseball team. It's in the sixth grade, the varsity team in his school. He didn't, he didn't go much further than that because he had to work, but uh, he, he was a very good athlete, and he could do triples and dive, and he could do a lot of things. He was much better than me, I think, if he'd had the same opportunities. When I was nine years old, I thought I'd, I guess you would call it a hot dog. I got into a rundown all the time, and they'd throw the ball, and then I'd run to the next base. They'd throw it, and I'd run to the next base, and I took advantage of their you know, inabilities at that point. Well, one time I got in a rundown and they threw the ball and I took off my helmet and caught the ball and they called me out. And then I threw a kind of, I didn't, <laughs> my dad saw that. That was all he needed. He came down out of his car, came and grabbed me by the back of my pants as I was kicking and he carried me up to the car and put me in the car and told me if I ever acted like that again, I'd never play another sport ever. But Richie learned his lesson and he'd go on to play a lot more sports for a lot more people. Despite his short stature, Richie overcame this obstacle with a combination of strength, athleticism, and a shot the people who saw it describe as perfection. Rich had a unique jump shot. He would jump and sort of fold his legs up and he shot with one hand. He was absolutely the pure shooter that I've, I've ever seen. Here again is Richie's coach, Ray Ferrer. His shot could not be taught. He just learned that. 
And, you know, everybody asked me, oh, yeah, I taught him to do that. Well, I didn't teach him how to do that. If you're a basketball purist, there are certain things that are supposed to happen mechanically. His jump shot is effectively arm-wise about as pure mechanically as it gets. So it was always a pleasure to watch him shoot. What I try to do is I try to reach up with my arm, let my wrist drop over, and boom, it's in. And the strength of my hands and arms and things made it easy because I didn't use two, you know, I only used one hand. He was just an outstanding shooter. As I always tell him, I'd never remember seeing you miss. Every time he'd go up to shoot, it would always go in. As an opponent, uh, playing against someone like Richie, he made you play your best game. There's one play that stands out in my mind that I've remembered over 50 years. He came down, put the ball on the floor maybe three times, dribble, 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 and he went straight up in the face of a 6'2", good defender and held the ball in one hand and cradled it and waited till the defender started to come down and he just flicked his wrist. Every time that he had the ball and you thought it's going to go in and it could be 10 footers, it could be 18 footers, it could be 28 footers. Anytime the ball's in his hands and you think it's going up, it's going in. If you find the story of Richie Jordan hard to believe, then just get a load of this statistic. During his senior year, Rich averaged 44.4 points per game. 44.4 per game. And that's before the three-point line was introduced. Here again is Rich's coach, Ray Fear. It would be amazing to find out, and it's impossible to do so, but how many points that he might have scored had they had the three-point line. Because I can remember one time his senior year, there were several college scouts at a game at uh, Hopkins, and uh, he missed his first couple three shots. And then he made 15 in a row from the middle of the second quarter till halftime. And every one of those would have been three-point shots. Instead of having 30 points at halftime, he would have had 45 points at halftime. Some people would have thought that Rich was arrogant. But where do you separate arrogance or confidence? I mean, he knew he was good. Even in warm-ups, you saw something in his demeanor that this guy just has that certain thing. He wasn't your average high school player. Richie was focused. He was already thinking about what he wanted to do, how he was going to do it. He was in game mode right from the get-go. His demeanor never changed. It didn't pout, didn't, you know, be disgusted or anything. Just come back down and shoot it the same way. He uh, had no real outward signs of emotion. He could miss three shots. He could make five in a row. You would never know it. You know, I've probably talked to a hundred people over my lifetime who said, geez, that guy must have been a real ball hog to score 44 points. He was anything but a ball hog. The thing about with our team is everybody knew what they were supposed to do. And everybody did what they were supposed to do. If you'd watched us play, the ball moved around a lot, a lot of fast breaks, and all of us had some pretty good speed. We, were, we all got our hands on the ball at various times. It, it wasn't kind of just feed Rich and let him shoot. Because you don't do these things by yourself, you know. And if a person was open, they got the ball from me. And it was never all about me. It was, let's win this game as a team. In 
In Rich's senior season, Fenville and Rich played a record-setting game against Kalamazoo Hackett High School. By that time, Rich's legend had grown so large, the amount of people who wanted to see him play couldn't fit in the high school gym. We were supposed to play them a home game. They were supposed to come to Fenville. But the Kalamazoo people were so excited about our team and myself making these points that they made it. They suggested that we played in the Kalamazoo Western Michigan Fieldhouse. I can remember the bus ride over, and we were excited because I'd been in Reed Fieldhouse a couple times uh, in, in high school track meets, and we knew that there had been a lot of people. Well, we come in from Fenville to this big arena. It was so exciting, you know, I'd never been on a college court. And the place was chuck full, and I don't know, somewhere around 10,000 people in there. And these kids had never played in a crowd like that. And uh, they were so nervous, I got them in the locker room as quick as I could, and we got dressed. When we went onto the floor, it was a different experience than any of us had ever had because there were so many people there. That's still the most well-attended game in the history of that field house. So we start the game, and we're just terrible. In these big basketball arenas, the baskets are kind of freestanding. And, you know, in the small gyms, you got a wall behind it, you know. So they couldn't hardly hit the rim, including Rich. We got off to a little bit of a shaky start, and part of it was they were using a brand new basketball, which is really what you don't do because it was very slippery. And so we were having a difficult time handling it. I was six for 12 in the first half. I had 13 points, and they were booing, and people were sitting next to my parents, and, my, and they were you know, saying, oh, this guy, you know, they, I came from St. Louis, Missouri to see this, this guy's not, and they are beating us by 10, 18 points, I think. I think Rich had maybe 12 points, but he probably shot 25 times to get him in the first half. He turned the ball over, and we were awful. In the third quarter, we got off to a slow start, and we got behind, I can't remember, maybe by uh, 10 points, maybe 10 or 12 points. But halfway through the third quarter, we began to get back into the cycle of running, and uh, that began to turn the tide. It was like someone took my arm and started shooting it for me. Everything started going in. And the guys were playing, you know, rebound. We were working and we came back. Rich shot uh, several very key shots, very long shots. And, uh, and so that drew them out where we could start driving the ball to the basket and gradually whittled away at it. I ended up having 24 in the last quarter, 36 for the second half. And we beat them 76 to 72. After high school, Richie Jordan attended Michigan State University where he played both basketball and baseball. Following college, he signed a contract with the Pittsburgh Pirates baseball team, but an injury ended his big league dreams. Many of his records still stand today, as does the memory of the 5'7 basketball star. And those who saw him play remember him as a legend. Fenville hasn't forgotten Richie Jordan. When you enter the town today, you see a large green sign that says Fenville, and right underneath the town name is another sign that says, Hometown of Richard Richie Jordan, member of the 2001 National High School Hall of Fame. And there's one more thing. How many high school athletes do you know of who had their hometown renamed after them? That's the voice of Michigan sports writer Steve Kaminsky. Steve writes for MLive.com and the Grand Rapids Press. 
He's right now working on a story of Michigan's most notable sports figures, and Richie Jordan has made that list. It doesn't matter if you played in the 1960s or maybe you play in 2020. If you're a great basketball player, you are eventually going to be compared to Richie Jordan. You see, Richie Jordan is the gold standard when it comes to high school basketball in the state of Michigan. Fanville is home. Uh, the people there, um, they've just treated me like uh, I was very special. Uh, they named the town after me for a day. You know, how many kids at that age get that kind of recognition? I can think of one. That's Richie Jordan, the Fenville Flash. It's true, and it only happened for a day, but Fenville became known as Jordanville. That's how much Fenville loves, respects, and admires Richie Jordan. It was a wonderful experience, a wonderful time of life. You know, it's something you never, you'll never get that kind of feeling back. It was a great time while it lasted. It was great. And a very special thanks to John Elfner. He's a high school history teacher from Illinois, and he does a great job for us. And by the way, these local legend stories, send them. We're really serious. We love these stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. A legendary sports figure, military hero, teacher, a civic leader, faith leader. Send the stories again to OurAmericanStories.com. And by the way, to get this documentary, go to Amazon Prime and look for Jordanville. The story of a big-time, small-town legend. The story of Richie Jordan, the Fenville Flash, the five-foot-seven phenom. And my goodness, go to Google and just Google the pictures of his vertical leap. The guy's three feet off the ground when he's lining up his one-handed jump shot. He doesn't use the left hand to guide the shot, folks. It's just the one hand. It's perfect form. So perfect. He doesn't even need the left hand. I know I loved high school basketball, and I still play horse and three-on-three to this day. When I'm not thinking of anything else, I'm thinking of hoops. Richie Jordan's story, the Fenville Flash, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And one of the most important subjects we talk about on this show is marriage and the family. And that brings us to our Relationship Story Hour with our friend J.P. DeGantz, and he runs a group called Communio. Communio is committed to healing marriages, and they do phenomenal work across this country. And you're about to hear from two people, Chris and Lucretia, about the trials they faced both to be together and to stay together. Here's JP with their story. 
Chris began his life in the projects. When he was still just a boy, both of his parents became incarcerated. So Chris and his siblings were split up amongst family. He went to go live with one of his cousins, who he eventually came to call his mother. She was able to bring him up in a better home and school district away from the projects. But he still had some behavioral issues. She's still a single mother. Now she had the responsibility of two boys. Myself coming in the picture is three. So, you know, the responsibility just instantly doubled because you know, she had her two sons, but now it's like, you got to care for another, ch another child like it's your, your own. And you still have to deal with that burden. And growing up from my environment that I was previously in, I had behavior issues. I had, you know, as they call it, they call it, they labeled me as emotional, disturbed. So, you know, so I, I went to special classes, you know, so that causes, you know, I would say resentment, but it kind of make you feel out of place and you can only result to, which what well, I was only able to result to, the emotions that I have always displayed, which was anger and outbursts. So she had to kind of navigate those waters with me it kind of showed me that, hey, you know, I'm no different than any other kid. Lucretia grew up with a single mom who worked nights. She didn't have a lot of adult supervision and at the age of 16, had her first daughter. Chris and Lucretia had known of each other in high school, but didn't have much interaction. Chris moved away, married, divorced, and then the Navy brought him to Jacksonville, Florida. Lucretia had moved there recently with her two daughters. One day, they just so happened to run into each other. The way I remember it, it was like, oh, a best friend, even though we weren't close, but it was a familiar face. From the first time we went out, I think a couple weeks later, he was deployed and had to go overseas. So he went on his six month tour and we did a, a lot of emailing. We didn't talk much on the phone. This was before cell phones were really popular. <laughs> And he was in a different time zone, of course, so I would email him from, my, from work and have to wait a whole another day to see his response. So we would go back and forth uh, through email for like six months. Then he came back and decided to stay in Florida. And that's when the relationship kicked up even more, uh, got pregnant, and then I'm like, okay. <laughs> if, if you really want to be with me, then that's when we need to get married. So. That's how that worked out. I think me, I'm, I guess I could use the word pressuring Chris to propose and be serious had a lot to do with how I wanted to live as a Christian uh, in my Christian walk. I'm like, I wanted to raise my kids the right way, even though I started the wrong way, but I wanted to raise them the right way. So. Lucretia had high hopes for marriage, but what had she hoped for? that it would be better, that life would be better, which is very false. I mean, we did do the premarital counseling, but I feel like I still was, still had my head in the clouds, not really knowing what marriage was and the work that it takes to have a successful, long marriage, so. Soon, these fantastic hopes for marriage were shaken. One of the big problems that they had in their marriage was Chris's friendships with the opposite sex. Lucretia didn't know how to explain her discomfort to Chris. And this 
built up a lot of resentment. For me, it's just like, you know, Chris is a people person and I'm more quiet. So it would upset me when he would see a female and get all excited. I've always felt like, no, that's, that's what I get, you know, not, <laughs> not how you uh, interact with another female. So that always bothered me. Um, still kind of bothers me today, but I know the type of his personality. So I think I've always tried to change that and I never wanted to accept that. Chris's outgoing personality became somewhat of an excuse to talk to other women in a way that made Lucretia uncomfortable. A lot of relationships that I, that was established in, in good faith did cross a lot of gray area. It was happening because she did she didn't disagree, she didn't agree with it and it's you know and I didn't know how to communicate that. I didn't know how didn't know how to say, well hey, you know, it, it seemed more to me it seemed more easier to say, well there's no need to tell her about this because, you know, it's not like I'm sleeping with these people or I'm doing this, but I am devoting time and energy and I am sneaking around having these conversations and, you know, so, and that's just me being just immature of how to communicate with my wife about situations and understanding her feelings and her perspective of, you know, how to really truly have relationships of the opposite sex or whatnot, or how to really, uh, what purpose of the relationship is. It all boils down with it was just a, a huge communication gap between us. And I just think as we as a couple constantly kept missing the mark in our communication, more stuff started to spiral and happen within the marriage, our relationship, and the household in itself. It's rare that miscommunication only affects one aspect of marriage. Chris and Lucretia couldn't tell each other what they really needed. So while Lucretia craved emotional security and closeness, Chris was focused on their family's material needs. My whole thing was, you know, as society says, a man provides, and I took that that statement and like, hey, I'm gonna work. I'm gonna go to work every day. I'm gonna try to make sure that we are our living situation is best to my ability. I'm gonna make sure that the things that I went through as a child and being in the dark and not having food would never, would never, our family, our kids would never have to worry about that. So I just took on that role that I just work, 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 you know, provide, provide, provide. And, uh, and in doing that, you know, you wind up neglecting a lot of things that need the most attention, you know. It's great to provide, but when you just coming and going and and you know, and our biggest thing was, you know, I was coming and going, going to work, going overtime, but we still wasn't communicating. So, you know, or if we was communicating, I wasn't getting what was being communicated. So I just continued to say, hey, well, you know, lights on, food in the refrigerator, rent's paid, 
you know, we can do this, we can do that, and not really focusing on her needs in general. And because of that, you know, it just, it's neglect. You know, you neglect something for so long, it's bound to have some type of defect or, you know, or you're going to have to turn to it to correct it. So I just wound up neglecting her needs as a whole. And because of that, you know, some things happened, you know, uh, uh, affair occurred, you know, now, um, which hurt, you know, you know, it kind of, the, the, the affair hurt, uh, you know, it hurt to the point that it was not that, the affair hurt so much because, you know, as Preacher mentioned, she had two girls when I came into the picture, but the affair was with one of our daughter's father. Chris's neglect of Lucretia's needs played a large role in the affair that took place. This affair had a special type of sting to it because it was the biological father of one of Lucretia's daughters, a young lady growing up in Chris and Lucretia's home. Of course, affairs of this sort don't happen overnight, and it takes two people to lead to something like this. I feel like we were both working. We have, for the most part, always worked in building a life for our family. But I always felt like since Chris had issues with relation, building relationships with females, I always, I always thought he, he was cheating. Every time I turned around, it was another woman, this woman, he's meeting this place, emailing, or what have you. So when the opportunity presented itself for me to find somebody familiar, well, I bumped into him and it was a familiar face. So that's how that came about. <clears throat> and since I always thought Chris cheating anyway, he's, he's not listening to me. He doesn't care that I have an issue with um, him talking to other females. Um, he always say, not always say, but he has said that, you know, I'm insecure and uh, I always felt that I was blown out of proportion, but I knew what I thought in the back of my mind, no, because th these are not normal relationships you're having. So when the issue arose or whatever, um, my thought was, well, he's cheating anyway. So, or he's doing whatever he wants to do. That was the phrase I always say, you always do what you want to do, that I always use. and. Uh, so this was when, why I started doing what I wanted to do. I appreciate um, the bills being paid and stuff like that, but it's more to a marriage than just paying the bills and a roof over your head. It's about bonding and connecting, so we weren't doing that. Who cares about uh, the lights? It's about family, so that was important. Lucretia felt justified in her affair. She felt like Chris had not respected her feelings or concerns for so long. She was lonely and hurt and chose to do what she wanted. So how did Chris find out what was going on? 
It came to light because I was doing what I wanted. I just came and was coming. I remember just coming in the house late, which was unusual for me, I guess. And he asked me, was I cheating? I said, yeah. I don't remember what was said after that, but um, I remember wanting to stop. And I remember reaching out to people, not for help, but more for advice, more for like stories like this. I need somebody that I can relate to, somebody to be honest with me saying that, not that it's normal, but it happens and this is how you get through it. And I couldn't find that. I couldn't find that. Uh, so it progressed because I couldn't, I didn't know how to get out. I didn't know if I wanted to get out. One day I wanted to get out and the next day I didn't. So uh, Chris just stuck with me. You know, you go from being angry to being enraged. You just deal with so many emotions and you know, and in my mind, I had a kind of idea of who it could possibly be, knowing my wife's personality and who she is. So, so, you know, so I just went through a whole slew of emotions and and tried to come to grips because, you know, what you're going through, you realize, you know, the writer was on the wall, she was saying this, and and it kind of, I was being prompt. Like, you know, if you wasn't neglecting me, this wouldn't happen, you know. So. So once I found out, you know, I didn't go to anybody. Well, I did go to one person, that was Google. You know, I, I Googled, you know, how to survive this, like most people. And of course, Google give you article on top of every article and whatnot. So so I, I tried to get through this with through Google. And uh, and that didn't, that didn't really, help at all, but I started listening to a, a radio show that kind of gave everyday advice and uh, and through everyday callers. And, uh, and something they said kind of just struck with me about my behavior and how my behavior dictated her behavior. So it was like, once you understand that, you know, your behavior plays plays a, a, a greater part or equal part into somebody else's behavior. So once I came to grasp with that, then I was like, okay, you know, I'm as in, when she's having a fear, I'm the cause of the fear, you know. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I left the door open, you know, left her unprotected, so. So it just go into the board of how, how do you make it work? How do you stand? beside her. Chris's understandable anger and pain led him on a search that ultimately turned him inward. It's a process that, today, too few undertake. And my goodness, a confessional of a sort that you don't hear much in life, folks. And what a thing for him to say. I'm the cause of the affair. It's a hard thing for a man or a woman to say. My behavior led to someone else's bad behavior. I left the door open. And then to the searching, how do I make it work? How do I fix this? How do you stand beside her after she did this? Big questions, more of this remarkable story 
and we're talking about Chris and Lucretia Hanna's story and so many other marriages out there in this country right now going through the same thing. More of their story, more of our relationship story hour here on Our American Stories. Now let's continue with Chris and Lucretia's story. Chris was ready to start taking responsibility for his side of the situation. But given where things stood, he began the process of getting a divorce. In my head, I'm like, well, I've been married before and I've been divorced before, you know. Uh, you just start all over, you know. So, you know, so I remember I went down to the courthouse and got the divorce packet, you know, which, you know, it, it was no question I asked. I wanted a divorce packet. They didn't, uh, they didn't ask any questions. They just gave it to me, you know. And, and at first, I was like, well, I'm going to need a lawyer. But they have the packet where you really don't need a lawyer, you know. So I don't know why they get all this money, but you don't. But uh, so I got a divorce packet, and I remember I got a divorce packet, and I put it in my truck, you know, because, you know, thinking this, you know, started over is not bad because you have started over before. But it was one of those things that that's not, that's not what I wanted. So, you know, so I put the divorce packet in my truck, and it just sat there, it sat there to, you know, you know, you forget that you had, you know, I forgot that I had a divorce packet. We started, we started investing in the marriage by taking a class to help us communicate, and, you know, and, you know, which was mine, which, which opened our minds because it's like, you know, you know, marriage doesn't have a renewal class every year like a driver's license or a gun permit or a fishing permit, but it's one of the most important facets of life that, you know, they just, you get married and then you go about your life without saying, hey, well, we commit or have some type of continuing education, you know, so, so but we took a class and it just helped us communicate in ways that we weren't communicating. Um, it kind of helped, it helped us, you know, lift up that rug that, you know, from all the stuff that we were sweeping under it and really dispose of it. So, so it just allowed me, it allowed me as a person to take accountability of my actions and how my actions caused, you know, my marriage and possibly family so much turmoil. Uh, I just started saying how just this one divorce just separates a family and how and how everything that I didn't want my kids to go through, how that one divorce would have possibly, or the second divorce, would possibly create. It would create the single family household. It would create, you know, the possible financial struggles that, you know, I so-called say I'm going to work to prevent. You know, so I just had to make up my mind that, hey, you know, this is what I want, you know. And, you know, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm glad I did and we did, that we made that choice to fight through the marriage and fight through the struggles because it's only for the better. The class that they attended helped Chris confront some personal issues. They were making progress, 
but this didn't take away the hurt and the aftermath of the affair. They still had a lot of work to do. Specifically, the fact that Lucretia cheated with one of her daughter's fathers. Chris was raising this man's child, and he felt disrespected. Even though we made the commitment to stay married and work through it, it was still stumbling blocks, because even from my perspective, it was one of those things that, you know, it's kind of like the disrespect factor, like, well, you had an affair with, you know, one of the kid's father. I felt disrespected in the sense that, you know, I'm helping to take care of the child that he helped create. So he should have some sense of gratitude for me. So knowing that, you know, you still wrestle with, yeah, I want the marriage to work, but then you still have this something inside you that, that you know, you, you still hold what I was still holding on to until I had to actually let it go that I'm like, you know, it's, I'm, I've been ultimately disrespected. So I, I did have my own internal struggles that I had to deal with. And in, in, in during that time, you know, we had our conflicts. And like I said, we went to another class where, you know, where the emphasis was more like, we're not good without the other. You know, it's kind of like, as good as the right, it's great to have your right hand, but the left hand has importance too. Why it's your right ear or your left ear. So we just went to a class that showed how everything works together, you know. So as long as we start working together, it makes everything so much better, you know. So I can't stand behind, beside her in support and still have resentment and bitterness in me and hope that everything works together. The fact that Chris and Lucretia can make their marriage work through all of this turmoil has effects well beyond them. Their story is an example for others. Most importantly, their own children. It's definitely worth sticking it together because it shows my kids that marriage isn't perfect and uh, you don't have to quit. It's easier to quit. I think it would have been no, I'm not sure, but uh, it shows that we're committed, we love each other, it's important to us, um, and even though our marriage isn't, it has never been perfect, I feel like my kids do want what we have, um, so, and that's important because it's generational, so it's breaking the generational curse because I was raised in a single parent family. His mom was single, so it's like the foundation was broken. And I think we're, we're making a solid foundation by staying committed through the good and the bad. They are creating a new foundation of love and perseverance for their children. That foundation includes showing their children what forgiveness looks like after such an event. You have to forgive yourself daily. Of course, you know, I feel like my past comes up just about me thinking or, you know, just remembering stuff. So it's like not dwelling on the thoughts um, and forgiving myself daily and forgiving him daily, knowing that I'm not perfect and he's not perfect. And he talked about seeing a counselor and it's like, I guess I thought maybe he should be perfect, even though you know someone isn't perfect. It's always in the back of my head that 
it should be perfect. Like, why isn't this working? It's crazy. But it's about forgiving daily and reminding myself that he is not perfect. Yeah, that is a big one. That's a big one. We left off with Lucretia sharing about forgiveness. But now we return to Chris, talking through the steps he's taken to forgive those who have hurt him. When it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to me, I have to, it's a, it comes a whole slew of people. You know, I have to forgive my father, I have to forgive my mother because I, I have to forgive them for, because they didn't know. You know, it's like, uh, you know, when, when I had our kids, you're just young, you're young and mature, so you're just that, you're, you're instantly a parent and you don't know what it takes to be a parent. You know, so I have to forgive them for not knowing how to be that role model uh, or be that father figure to a child that they brought into the world. But, you know, but, you know, but like I say, as she mentioned, I would want somebody to forgive, forgive me for my flaws because I'm not perfect myself. Even with the affair, and I talked about the disrespect of, you know, one of the kids' father haven't taken part in the affair, is a forgiveness that I have to give to him to free myself, I feel, that I have to forgive him for the actions. And I think that's why I took, I took some blame in projecting the affair because, you know, once I was able to forgive him, I was able also to forgive myself in the role that I, I helped cause and create. So I think when it comes to forgiveness, it's one of those things that if the I heard the analogy is like forgiveness, not forgiving a person is like drinking the poison and hoping somebody else die. So it's one of those things that, you know, if I wanna live, then I gotta let that poison of what I'm holding on to that person and myself go. So that's forgiveness is really needed. Chris and Lucretia have been through a lot, and rather than keeping their struggles to themselves, they've decided to become the people they wish they had in their own lives earlier. They've begun coaching and mentoring other couples through difficult marital struggles. Yeah, I agree. Uh, got into coaching because, you know, like I say, we, we're not the first couple that's going through this, and I can assure we're not gonna be the last couple so getting to getting to coach couples after going through what we have been through is just more assuring them that hey, you know, marriage is the greatest adventure that you're gonna experience. And I just use the analogy, marriage is like a roller coaster. When you get to the top, if you jump off, you're dead. But if you keep riding it, yeah, you're gonna have some loops and scary, and you're gonna scream. But once it comes to a stop, you're gonna look back and like, wow, you know. We had a blast, so, and that's what I really just want to reiterate to people and, and share with them that, you know, is it, yeah, it's going to be some ups and downs, just like a roller coaster, but it's the greatest adventure you uh, you ever experience, and just like my wife said, just, it's an accountability factor, because when I coach a person, I hold them accountable to what's being taught and what's being said. And I can't hold them accountable if I can't hold myself accountable. So I can't ask them, are they doing the 
tools or the DTR or the dialogue guide if I'm not doing it myself. So, you know, so that's why I got into coaching just to continue to pay it forward, you know, and, and to be that example that, hey, you know, you know, nobody said marriage is all for the games. You know, I, I used to tell her, I tell my buddy, I said, man, marriage is for grown folks. So you want to be a kid, don't get married. Love and dedication in marriage is a choice, not something that just happens. The Hannahs want to be a beacon of hope for those in crisis. Lucretia specifically had wanted someone to come alongside her, but instead felt alone. She does not want that to be the story for someone else. Another thing about coaching, which is made me interested, was being available for couples in crisis since I didn't have that point of contact uh, for myself. So I just want to be available to women uh, in crisis. So. I was talking to a girlfriend of mine and I guess she was feeling insecure in her marriage. Um, and I was just saying how I believe that it is the husband's responsibility to make her feel secure, whether he's cheating or not. Um, he should help her combat those thoughts, if that's the right word. Um, because, and take it serious, because you can say, no, I'm not doing nothing to leave it at that. But women, I'm, well, my mind gets it going one after the other, and it's like a cycle. So if you're not doing anything uh, to help her, it, it, it doesn't go away. So I think it is the husband's, part of the husband's responsibility to make the wife feel secure in the marriage um, to prevent those thoughts from spiraling and getting out of control. Learning and growth in marriage never stops. Chris and Lucretia see the benefits of continuing to seek wisdom and advice from those ahead of them in their own marital journey. Uh, like I said, I'll use the, when I see older couples, I just come up to them and ask them, you know, I'm fascinated, you're older, you know, I ask them, what's the secret, you know? Like, what's the secret that y'all been together so long? And, and, you know, I get some that say, you know, well, just do what your wife says and you'll be happy, or happy wife, happy life. You know, like, okay, you know. But then I just met this one couple and he was like, you want to know the secret? And I'm like, yes, sir, I really want to know the secret. You know, how y'all, how, how have y'all been together so long? And his wife interjected and said, well, this is the secret. When I was unlovable, he loved me. And he was like, and she loved me when I was not lovable. So he was like, as long as you do that, it all balance itself out eventually. You know, so that was a piece of advice that really stuck with me saying, hey, you know, you know, when you're unlovable, to love a person when they're not in the best state to be loved should be applauded. You know, it takes a lot, you know, to for anyone to do that. You know, just, just to know that it's gonna come back full circle where one day that same love and forgiveness and mercy and grace, you will have to they will have to give back to you. So, you know, so, and that's just what marriage is, you know, it's 
hey, when I'm down, you're there to pull me up, and vice versa, to where, you know, we're able to be there together, hand in hand, you know, so, you know, so that was like really great advice that this older couple gave me, you know, that, you know, I, I believe holds true. Clearly, Chris and Lucretia have struggled and suffered, and they can now see how that all fits into their beautiful journey together. Wow, you know, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, you know. Uh, what it has showed me and what I have learned from it, you know, I don't think you could get, get it from anywhere else, you know. You know, it's unfortunately that life forces you to go through some things to really grasp it, you know, or because, you know, this can be put in a book, but until you, well, it's in many books, but until you live it and come through the other side of it, then you get it, you know. So, so and I would just hope that, you know, those who listen to the podcast and that, you know, if you're not going through it, you know, and those who are, that this is just inspirational. Our story and many other stories that, you know, is is light. Is is the old set is light in the tunnel. It's it's bigger than that. Is you know, it's like I say, it's sunshine, it's happiness, it's joy, it's a breath of fresh air in the end of the tunnel. It's it's renewed life in the inner at the end of the tunnel when you come out of whatever darkness or whatever circumstances that you are in. So, you know, so would I change it? No, I wouldn't because what I'm experiencing from it and what I get to share because I went through it. And what a story and thanks to Chris and Lucretia for sharing it with us. They hail from Jacksonville and that's Jacksonville, Florida. And a special thanks to JP DeGans, our relationship story hour. Go to communio.org if you are a member of a church, a civic organization. Bring this to your workplace. Um, what they have to offer folks, oh my goodness, you just heard it. And from the communication workshops to everything else, and then creating a culture where we reinforce and strengthen marriages. Life forces you to go through things to really grasp it, Chris said, until you live it and get through to the other side of it. Well, then you'll know it. It was interesting what they both had to say about forgiveness. Chris had said, I had to forgive a slew of people because they didn't know. I have to forgive them for not being that role model, that father figure to the child they brought into the world. What a thing to forgive. And then, of course, marriage is the greatest adventure you'll ever experience using that metaphor of the roller coaster. Just so good. I love what that older gentleman said about marriage. What's the secret? He said, when I was unlovable, she loved me. When she was unlovable, I loved her. And that is it in a nutshell, folks. Chris and Lucretia Hanna's story, our relationship story hour here on Our American Stories. <laughs>